This is the Shelter Island Reporter Podcast, conversations with fascinating people on and around our island. I'm Susan Carey Dempsey. Today's podcast features Jeremy Samuelson, director of the Nature Conservancy's Mashamic Preserve. We'll find out what it's like to live and work in the midst of this 2,000-acre jewel of unspoiled nature. Jeremy, I think uh, we have a wonderful uh, vision of what it's like to be the director of Mishamik, um, and uh, I'm so glad you're here with me today so I can ask you, what is your job really like? It's not one thing. No, no. So uh, it's, you know, I, I think probably the the big difference between what folks may envision versus what it is mm-hmm. um i actually do spend a lot of time staring at a screen which <laughs> oh <laughs> is, my is true for all of us i think but yes. i i very regularly get to offset that with being outside mm-hmm. breathing fresh air talking with visitors to the preserve kids who are coming from schools to learn about nature right. and the role they can play in the world yes so um the preserve is over 2000 acres and um, even though it's all kept, you know, beautiful and wild and supposedly natural, I imagine that just takes quite a bit of maintenance and oversight to keep it that way. So how big a, a staff do you have? So we have a full-time year-round team of nine. And mm-hmm. then in the growing season, the warmer months, uh, we grow that with some young people who are just at that jumping off point from finishing an undergraduate degree and are trying to figure out uh, the path that they're going to make into the field of conservation. What a nice way to segue into you know, life after school, but what great experience and great time to be outside and be, you know, in the woods. <laughs> yeah, and I I think, yeah, I look at the, the young folks who come to us each year, and, you know, I'm, part of me is a little envious because they get to be outside and yeah. they're on the trails and all that, yes. and then there are those hot days with the green flies and, you know, the, the mower doesn't work, and <laughs> and you think, okay, yeah, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm okay over here for yeah, today. Right, so, yeah. that's true. It all balances out usually, usually. Yeah. Um, so your background has, has been in this field. You were... Um, you came to Mishamak about three years ago now, right? Creeping up on three years. Three yep. years, yeah. And you were at Montauk before that, but in a similar role with the concerned citizens of Montauk? Uh, it, I would say similar questions, but very different work. In, in other words, I, I wasn't in charge of a specific preserve. Okay. Um, but I worked for an environmental nonprofit. We were working a lot on water quality and a lot of these same questions that now form the core of the big questions that we're trying to answer about how do we all live as a community in a changing world? Yes, yes. You're right in the thick of it. And I, I know we see, especially because we're so close to nature on the island, so we do see a lot of the signs that maybe other people uh, wouldn't see as quickly. And we definitely know that uh, ch- change has come that has to be reckoned with, even when you look at the ferries who have had to raise their ramps because of the, the rising tides. This is factual. This is science. And we have to you know, 
accept it and, and see how we can deal with it. So what are some of the kind of warning signs that you have to watch out for in your environment and in, in the Mashamic Preserve? So I think Mashamic a lot of times gives us a way to have science-based conversations that in another setting might be difficult and that we're not quite ready to have yet. And what I mean by that is, I'll, I'll give you a, a very simple example. I was walking on uh, what's called our Yellow Trail the other day, and mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a boardwalk that's right behind Miss Annie's Creek. Okay. And, you know, that boardwalk, I, I looked at the paperwork, I can't remember, you know, it went in maybe 12 or 15 years ago or something. You know, it's, it's one of these things that's, at one point it was over here, now it's over there, and, you know, so mm -hmm. where, where it sits now um, is a very wet area. And it's getting wetter and wetter as mm -hmm. time goes by. And, you know, one thing that a lot of folks don't yet know, you know, sort of the science of on the back end, uh, just out in the, you know, broader community, is that there's actually a one-to-one -one rise between sea level and the groundwater that's underneath Shelter Island. And so what that means is by any increment of measurement, whether it's one inch or one centimeter or one foot, um, if sea level rises then there's going to be a corresponding rise that is exactly one-to-one -one okay. with the groundwater beneath our feet. Um, and so what that means is that where we can build, where we put a road, right. where, where we put drainage, where we put utility infrastructure, right. it, we're going to have to make some hard choices and we're going to have to move some stuff around. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of times standing on a trail in the middle of a nature preserve, looking at a boardwalk and having that conversation allows us to just focus on those parts of these difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. You know, hey, we own infrastructure. Is it in the right place? What's the most sensible way to get on a better path, literally? Mm -hmm. um, it's a little easier than, you know, when we are, uh, you know, right downtown, uh, you know, looking at, you know, a piece of um, private property that has a lot of these same challenges that says, I can no longer drain stormwater from my property because, yeah. you know, the groundwater beneath our feet is consistently too high. So how are we going to manage right. that? Right. Yeah. But those are um, real um, specific challenges that can, you can find answers to them and, and will. Um, and they're on the, the small scale. So even while people are debating on the, the large global scale, what can be done, these these issues have to be addressed, you know, pretty much now. There isn't much time to, you know, you'd have no boardwalk left if you didn't address it soon enough. Um, but I I, uh, I think I, I wrote a, a piece last week on walking through Mishamik in the winter. I mean, it's just such treasure. We have, uh, it's wonderful every time of year, but in the, in the winter, you, you really could have like this whole universe to yourself. <laughs> it's fabulous. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things I think you have emphasized in your work um, is, is to call on people to be citizen scientists. And can you tell me what you mean by that? Yeah, I, I think we all, we all kind of do this anyway. I think if we're, um, if we're attuned to the world around us. So you, you walk out the front door in the morning and you ask yourself a simple question, you know, do I need a coat? You know, and mm -hmm. in a way, that's a very simple version of citizen science. The only missing piece is, are we also logging that information? And so the, the core notion here is that 
we don't all have to be PhD scientists in order to have a meaningful role in terms of either developing our own understanding mm -hmm. or contributing to the broader body of knowledge. So citizen science has really gained momentum over the last couple of decades as a way for people to participate meaningfully in helping develop data sets that actually help us make really important decisions about resource management. And so when you strip away all the you know sort of extra syllables there, what we're really talking about is people coming to a place like Meshomic and taking the same photo from the same position um, and then just uploading that to even social media in a way that allows us to capture that. And then we hmm. can then we can say things like, well, um, where is the water? Where is the tree line? What species are present in these photos? Um, you know, what what was the temperature at that time? You know, and if we're just mm. using uh, the community of visitors that share their time with us as a way to generate additional data, then that allows us to sort of scoop up a, a whole additional set of information that helps us make more informed decisions. So we sometimes do this very deliberately with school groups. We'll, mm -hmm. we'll walk them down to uh, the edge of Sanctuary Pond, for example, mm -hmm. um, and we'll say, okay, uh, we're gonna talk about water quality. We wanna look at dissolved oxygen. We, you know, here's why that matters. Um, and then we, you know, hand out some kits and we say, all right, you know, you're, you're scientists for the day. Mm. Um, take the tab, put it in the water. You need at least as much, shake it for that long, do the reading against this. And now, you know, here's the real magic of it. We now have a whole extra 15 or 20 samples that we can look at and we can compare this year's fourth grade Shelter Island class yeah. to next year's fourth year yeah. Shelter Island class. And it gives us a longer term data set. But the real magic here is hopefully we're, you know, sort of in fishing terms, we're setting the hook, mm. especially with those young minds. Right. You know, we're, we're getting people to look at, think about, care about, and then envision themselves as part of. And I think for so much of the work we're trying to do, that's really the key. I mean, people, you know, I think people often engage with us at Meshomic and think that we perceive ourselves, you know, the, the team at Meshomic as people who work with nature. And I, I think that's fair and that's true. But I'm always really asking my team to think about, you know, to what extent are we really in the people business? Mm -hmm. Because you know, we get 20,000 visitors a year. And our, I think, highest responsibility is to make sure that they have an amazing visit that makes them want to come back and care about the things we care about. Mm -hmm. So yes, we, we absolutely must care for the nature that we're charged with right. responsibility for stewarding. But the the real sort of magic happens when you take that responsibility and you make it the centerpiece of a visitor's experience to the preserve and use that as a way to then ask a broader set of questions and say, so if, if we can do good here, how do we export that to the rest of well, our that, lives? Well, that's the thing. I mean, they, they're leaving behind the data and you're using that in your research, but they are also leaving with a different mind. They've, they've had their hands on something. They've realized what it looks like to, to analyze and to see uh, change in the composition of the water. And then they will carry that forward, hopefully in other parts of their lives. Uh, so you're sending out all these little, you know, advocates for uh, the environment, hopefully. And uh, it, there's nothing to compare to having that, that hands-on experience. Um, you did something this, uh, this past summer where um, they, they call it Hall Sane. They 
throw throw the fishing net in. You can describe it better than I can, but it was a very uh, um, exciting experience for some of the the young people who were there. Yeah. Did you get to come out? Oh, I was there the first time, and you had to call it off. I know. Pesky lightning. You were. (laughs) You you had. (laughs) We were. We had several people there. Some some children and some grown-ups, and we were excited about it. And you said, this is where I have to stand up and be the grown-up and not send these men out in this metal boat in a thunderstorm. (laughs) So you wisely called it off. And then you did it later in the year, and uh, a lot of the kids got to come back, and they really got their hands on blowfish and all kinds of other things that were were brought in. Yeah. So those are wonderful uh, experiences for kids and then grown-ups. You know, grown-ups get to be kids when, when they do those things. Yeah, the the hall scenes are one of my favorite activities that we get to do at the preserve. So the the very quick background on this for folks who maybe aren't familiar with either that term or the practice. Um, it, traditionally, for nearshore commercial fisheries, this was a subsistence fishing method that you know families out here, mm. um, you know, watermen, baymen. Uh, and their families used. And so the the way this worked was that was one of several activities between gill netting, pound traps, conch pots, all these different activities Mm -hmm. that would really round out um, sort of a complete year's worth of work. And so historically what would happen, I mean, this is before there were even, um, you know, motorized vehicles, using horse-drawn teams on on the ocean beach in particular, one team would set the net, launch a boat, back it into the surf and go out in a much bigger net than we use. Uh, and then, you know, row the boat and set the net, a much bigger net than we use, uh-huh. um, and then would land the other net. So you basically set a large horseshoe of net, and then you have teams of people that would pull the lines on either end and work them in and then eventually work themselves together. And that's where you really needed the, the oh. horses to help you out. Wow, so, I never knew that. Yeah, so for 300-plus years on the um, the east end of Long Island, this has been one of the core activities that formed uh, these traditional fishing communities' ability to make a living year-round. And so this was prominent on the South Fork in particular right up into uh, the early 1980s. And then we ran smack dab uh, into the scare around PCBs and striped bass. Oh, okay. And so this was something that was documented very clearly by Peter Matheson in the book Men's mm-hmm, Lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually, years later, had a chance to work with some of the families that were featured in that book as part of my undergraduate work wow. doing uh, pound trap fishing, which is a, another thing that is um, happens on the preserve. It's not our work. There are local fishing families, uh, the Clarks in particular, who have been working those waters for hundreds of years. And I think part of our responsibility as stewards of the land now Mm -hmm. is to make sure that we continue to be fully fledged members of the community that look at, understand, and uphold those traditional accesses and find ways to make sure that uh, we contribute to the furtherance of those rather than the demise of those, which sadly yes. is something we see too much of. Yes, yeah, and and you're not a separate uh, walled-off entity. You're really part of um, a fishing community, a, a, an island community, and uh, that's that's an important part of your role, I think, is to make sure those those bridges stay, you know, nice and solid, uh, and that everybody is kind of working together. And really, when you look at our precious resources, uh, we, we have to. It would be very unwise not to. Uh, one of the um, perks of your job is that you get to live in a cabin or cottage. What would you describe it as? As in the uh, in the preserve, correct? 
Yeah, it's a really cool um, 1920s craftsman uh, cottage that was very generously donated by Jeff Lightcap going back uh, to, I think, uh, about seven, eight years ago at this point. And they, I'm sure you know the story well. You might even have written about it in the paper. Not I, but I may have read about it. Yeah, so they, they rolled it down the hill where it was from South Ferry, put it on a barge, and as is the tradition on Long Island, um, they floated it across. They do a and, lot of that. Yeah, right? <laughs> and, uh, and then had the foundation ready to go and got it settled. And so, yeah, we're very, very lucky. We get to live in this beautiful place in this cool old house. Oh, that and, is amazing. Yeah, it's part of the work. That is amazing. And so you're... Your wife, Carissa, and, and your yeah, two children? Or? Yep. Uh-huh. And how do they like it? Must have been an adjustment. It is. You know, so it's funny because we're, my, as I said before we started chatting, uh, on the record here, um, my, my wife grew up in East Hampton, and that's where we met, and we lived there together for years and years. And I think we knew we lived on kind of a noisy road before, but when, when we moved into Mishomek about <laughs> two weeks later, we looked at each other and said, wow, it's really quiet. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> In a lovely, lovely way. So, oh, yeah. 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 When you yeah. hear your own ears ringing or you yeah. know, just hear nothing, it's very yeah. hard to get used to, to hearing nothing. Yeah. And the children are... Uh, okay here they like the school and it's all good yeah what a uh, wonderful place to grow up yeah so you know my my daughter who is maybe the less outdoorsy of the, my two kids uh i just saw her kind of come bopping back into the house the other day and i said hey you know, where were you and she said i just went for a walk and you know just went down to the creek and, and i thought there it is yeah, you know there like it that, is. that's the magic that's yeah. true that yeah. is that is a gift that yeah. you've given her and yeah. him yeah. that's so awesome now i will ask you uh, to touch on your other parts of your life because i heard you speak very powerfully uh, last year at the gift of life yeah. event and gift of life is a local foundation that helps people who are struggling with cancer and other illnesses mm -hmm. and you did a great job as the auctioneer that night but you also talked about your own experience and I would uh, be very grateful if you can kind of speak to that for us yeah so um you know I think my family sadly, like so many families, has been touched in different ways uh, by diagnoses of cancer. So uh, when I was in college, um, my, my mother actually uh, struggled with three bouts of breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of my first really like close to home personal right. experience. And, you know, there were, there was real power in that for me. I tried to think about you know, very, very deeply and very personally about, you know, sort of what should this tell me about the lives that, you know, we all can live, that we mm -hmm. should live. You know, just a very simple idea of making the most of what you've got. Yeah. And then when I was 30, um, so some years after that, uh, I got a, a diagnosis of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And, you know, it was very clear to me that um, this was... In the final analysis, something that ultimately for all of the struggle and all of the pain and all of the fear that goes along with that, there, there was a gift in there somewhere. And, and that gift was clarity about how we need to move through this life. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't want to pretend that I have it all figured out because mm -hmm. that is so definitely not true. But, but I did walk away from that experience, you know, knowing, I think as I said that night at the gift of life, Knowing two things very clearly. One is that, you know, I had gotten very lucky in falling in love with my wife as the most beautiful woman in the world. Well, that's wonderful. <laughs> she, she really saw me through it. 
Um, the the other thing that that came out of it was um, almost a, a you know sort of love of life to the extent that it's precious and yes. and you must embrace. And yeah. if if you don't take yourself there, then you may not be getting everything out of it that you can. Mm -hmm. And so I have to kick myself, you know, uh, almost daily and say, please don't forget that. R remember that lesson. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, I, I think, you know, it, it opens doors to more meaningful, sometimes more difficult conversations with either people you love or strangers. But it's just, I think, moving through life in a little more exposed way that maybe causes me to wear my heart on my sleeve a little more, mm -hmm. but, but also um, hopefully makes me a little more open to some of the things that life has to offer. I, I know what you're, I do know, not from my own, but from my family's experiences, they have said things where they were grateful to have gotten this new outlook on life, even if they had a shorter life than they had hoped. But the time that they had after they became uh, diagnosed, they really looked for that that precious um, new perspective, and, and not just a mental perspective, but something that you put into action. And I think you're in a really good place where you can devote yourself to something that you really believe in and, and dedicate your your life and your health to, you know, really making a difference. So, you know, I, I think you've, you, if your heart's on a sleeve, it's a very, very positive <laughs> heart that you're displaying. Um, so thank you for sharing that. And I, I just want to ask you, you know, I wonder if life is just, you know, all, uh, all nature all the time, or do you ever just, uh, settle down with a, a, a favorite book or music? What are, what are your, some of your special uh, likes? I, I got so many binge watches going right now. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't some, that a treat? Oh, man. It's, <laughs> yeah. So um, we're, we're big-time Star Wars nerds in our family. So, of course. Uh, yeah. So, you know, we, we got all excited um, when the new one just came out, and we've watched and rewatched everything. So, uh, and then, you know, the, the Mandalorian and, you know, all this oh, different yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. So we're, we're big time into all that. That's great. Um, you know, our kids are, you know, they're nine and 11 now. So they're, they're at a really fun age where, you know, they, they have their own likes and, you know, things that they want to share with us. And there's enough overlap still. It's that, nice. Yeah. 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 They're, they're not like embarrassed by their parents yet. Yeah. A little, <laughs> but, but, you know, my, my, my job is to make sure they're embarrassed yeah. Yeah. so there, there's a lot of that there's a lot of um there's a lot of reading and non-screen time that we try to you know it's the struggle for all of us now, yeah right? sure um i mean here we are at the table we both have our phones within reach and exactly you know, you've got a laptop there and exactly. you know it's like it's all it's all there all the time yeah it's um, hard so. to disconnect yeah, yeah, but I mean, reading right now. Um, so on my nightstand, I've got, uh, let's see, I've got this really cool cultural history of Mishomik. So I don't know, you know, it's like uh, maybe I should read something. Yeah, Not you might yet. diversify. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. But there was some really cool archaeological work that was done shortly after the Nature Conservancy uh, took ownership of the property. 
um, and I always Ooh. have to say, with the help of the community, um, you know, back in uh, 1980. So it's, you know, literally uh, this past Tuesday was the 40th anniversary of the purchase of Mishomik. So, you know, wow, yay, 40 very years. timely. Yeah. That's yeah. A, it was a wonderful turning point. Right. Yeah. So um, I've been going back and reading some of the, the early stuff that, you know, you actually um, made me think of this earlier in the conversation. Um, you know, the, the property is has so many layers to it. It has so many stories to tell. Mm -hmm. And I think I made the, a mistake that I sometimes see other people making when they come to the property, which is this idea that it is, you know, pristine or whole or undisturbed. And not only is that not true, but it's actually far more fascinating than that. And what I mean by that is there there are the imprints of human use stretching mm -hmm. back millennia that are visible in every corner of the property. Wow. And we can see that literally from the shape of the trees, what trees grow where, what the composition of the understory is. Mm -hmm. And if, if you look at aerial photos of Mishomek, you can actually see where the old fence lines were from um, historic livestock grazing operations because oh. when the, the livestock were grazed, they literally changed the composition of the soil and the mm -hmm. composition of the plant communities. Even a hundred years later, we can now still stand in the forest and see very clearly the fence was here, these plants grow over here, they don't grow over there. And that's all directly related to. And so it, it's really... It's almost like, you know, if if you have a guide, and this is, I think, something that I'm trying to learn to be better at, and I'm mm -hmm. trying to listen to the people who came before me and read these materials, mm -hmm. because if you have somebody or, you know, tools that can help you unpack and peel back those layers, there is so much there. And it, and it not only tells us um, what came before, but it also, I think, should give us pause as we make decisions about how to manage the land and mm -hmm. what we should be managing for as we go forward. Yeah, I think that's amazing. It's it's like a real world laboratory. Exactly. Um, and and there must be some parallels with um, Sylvester Manor, which, you know, finally had some really good archaeology done and it's just still teaching us lessons about what's gone on here for thousands of years. And I think uh, it's great that it's it's been documented to this extent and must be uh, something you can look forward to continuing to, to learn from and to teach people from, you know? Yeah, and uh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, part of it, we, we always want the thing that's slightly beyond our grasp. And one of the things that is most fascinating to me, but we know the least about, is the pre-colonial history mm -hmm. of Shelter Island. And, and there's actually a, a decent body of work that you know has tried to assign itself that responsibility of understanding, documenting, researching. Um, but there's also, there are big holes in our knowledge, especially when you consider the, the sheer volume of information that we have that begins in the mid-1600s and goes forward yes, from there. Right. And you compare that to literally the nearly 10,000 years of you know human use and habitation, even on a seasonal basis, mm -hmm. um, that happen on the island. And there, you just... You know, sometimes I'll, I'll stand in a spot where, you know, I know that there was historic pre-colonial use on the property. And I will just try to imagine the personal stories and lives of people that came before. And it's, mm -hmm. it, would, it would be wonderful to know more than we do because I think it, it would be the right thing and it would help us inform how we make decisions. Oh, of course, of course. You know, yeah. just to, 
to learn something from history, but it really is deeply hidden on the on the island. It is amazing when you you discover some sign of you know Native American life. It's it's not something you encounter at all on the surface. Um, and I know uh, there's John Poliaro's digging up arrowheads and and trying to teach about the history is here, but even just to consider what is on the ground in Mashamek, it's just amazing. Right. Just amazing. So it's, it's uh, something to, you've got a lot of work ahead of you. You, <laughs> you have got so many fascinating things that you're going to continue yeah. to do from there. I think yeah. it's just fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of opportunities. Yes, yes. Well, uh, we are grateful for your work, and I'm very grateful you came out of the woods today <laughs> to come and talk with me, and I, I cannot wait to get back to Mishamik. Please, to, to come see on you. down. Every and, time yeah. we go, we see something new. Yeah. And I thank you. I just have to say thank you. You very generously shared with your readers uh, the activities we have going on mm-hmm. um, in last week's paper. And we just love, um, we love welcoming visitors. And I, I think, you know, the, just to try to give folks a sense for what the job actually is, there's, there's really two parts to it. One is care for, you know, these natural resources. The other one is share them. And mm-hmm. so uh, I'm very grateful that you help us, you know, let people know the many, many ways that they can come down, learn about birds, go for a walk, uh, yeah. enjoy, you know, the peace and quiet by themselves. Um, please come visit us. Yeah, well, people will be doing that, and we'll keep them updated from your calendar because you do have a lot already on the schedule. So yeah. uh, lucky people will come and visit Mashamik. Yeah. I'll be one of them. <laughs> Good. Let us know when you're coming. Okay, I will. Thank you, Jeremy. My pleasure. <laughs>